Okay, I was just thinking about um, the life of Judas this week and just kind of, you know, going through the Gospels and trying to put things together. And I just, uh, I found this verse a little bit interesting here in Mark, Mark 6, that Jesus called out the 12 disciples together and he sent them out two by two, gave them authority over the evil spirits and ordered them, don't take anything with you on the trip, trip except the walking stick and there are a whole bunch of instructions which I'll leave out. But they went out and they preached that people should turn away from their sins. They drove out many demons and rubbed olive oil on many sick people and healed them. Okay? He sent out the 12 disciples. So Judas was a part of that. You know, Judas went out, he preached, he called people to repentance, he was involved in healing. And just that we consider Judas, you know, the ministry of Jesus for three and a half years, that Judas was a part of that. Judas was involved in activities like this. And when the disciples came back excited, praising God for all the things that they'd seen, um, you know, Judas was a part of that. So I would just like to consider, I mean, sometimes we think that, you know, Judas didn't have any choice, that um, Jesus needed Judas to fulfill this mission or else all would be lost. And verses like this, here, Second Peter, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish not wanting anyone to perish, including Judas, but for everyone to come to repentance. And 1 Timothy 2, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So God is wanting everyone to come into his kingdom. And I, I think that even though it's clear that Jesus knew who it was that would betray him, um, I think it's also clear that the way Jesus treated Judas is to give him every possible opportunity to do something different. Okay, he wanted Judas to be part of his kingdom. Okay, so it's interesting. Right before uh, three times the Bible talks about Satan entering Judas or putting into Judas's mind the idea to do something, and it's real clear that this story, which is told in Mark and in John happened immediately before Judas decided to betray Jesus. So I think this story is um, significant. Okay, this is right before the Passover, right before the upper room. So in Mark, it was two days before the festival of Passover and unleavened bread. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for a way to arrest Jesus secretly and put him to death. We must not do it during the festival, they said, or the people might riot. Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had suffered from a dreaded skin disease, leprosy. And while Jesus was eating, <clears throat> a woman came in with an alabaster jar full of a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on Jesus' head. Some of the people there became angry and said to one another, what was the use of wasting the perfume? It could have been sold for more than 300 silver coins and the money given to the poor. And they criticized her harshly. Now, here in Mark, we're not told who it was that, that was the most vocal um, in complaining about this. Okay, But when we read the account in John, it's clear that uh, Judas was the one really offended by this. So one of Jesus' disciples, Judas Iscariot, the one who was going to betray him, said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 silver coins and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He carried the money bag and would help himself from it. But Jesus said, and this is, I would say, other than what Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. This is probably the other harshest rebuke to one of his disciples. Jesus said to, 
to um, uh, Judas, leave her alone. Let her keep what she has for the day of my burial. You will always have poor people with you, but you will not always have me. Okay, so, um, you know, here, of course, we really have hypocrisy, right? He appears like he's concerned about the poor, okay, but really he's the, he's the bank. And so he's upset that all of this money um, just went to waste. And Jesus went on. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body to prepare it ahead of time for burial. Now I assure you that wherever the gospel is preached all over the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So exactly what offended Judas to such a high degree, Jesus endorses as something that will be preached all over the world in memory of her. So he just takes a complete opposite approach to this action. And then, I mean, just reading on, then... Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went off to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. So, Jesus rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. Okay, but when he rebuked Judas, okay, that was it. And he went off right away to betray Jesus. He just couldn't handle this. Okay, so again, what specifically was the tipping point? You know, I, I would like to make the case that Judas was infected with the same virus that Peter was. Remember last week we said that Peter wanted the militant nationalistic kingdom that would defeat the Romans and that would you know, make the, the Jews a great nation once again and that Judas had the same ideals, same kind of a mindset. And here Jesus, instead of going in that direction, is at a house of a man who was a leper and he has this poor woman uh, wasting this perfume, and this is just not the direction of the kingdom. And then when Jesus went on to endorse her actions and to say, she's prepared me for burial, okay, if your ideal is a prize fighter Messiah who's going to conquer, and here he's saying, well, this, she's prepared me for my burial, um, again, very, very disappointing. This is where this king is going. Okay, and I think it just was so against um, his vision of the kingdom that, uh, that perhaps this is what drove him out to betray Jesus. <clears throat> so again, the, kind of the two strongest rebukes here to his disciples, to Peter and to Judas. But the reaction of the two, we're not told what Peter, how Peter responded, but uh, Judas, you know, when Jesus said that, uh, he went out to, to betray Jesus. Okay, so read what happens next in Luke 22. The time was near for the festival of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were afraid of the people, and so they were trying to find a way of putting Jesus to death. So this is kind of the same story now told in Luke. Okay, then Satan entered into Judas. And it's just interesting. How did that really happen? What does that mean? Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the twelve disciples. So Judas went off and spoke with the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard about how he could betray Jesus to them. They were pleased and offered to pay him money. Judas agreed to it and started looking for a good chance to hand Jesus over to them without the people knowing about it. The day came during the festival of unleavened bread when the lambs for the Passover meal were to be killed. And so Jesus goes with his disciples into the upper room and Judas is looking here for an opportunity. So why did Judas betray Jesus? Um, It's usually, at least as I've heard it, that it's primarily been about uh, money. Okay, he got money, he was a thief, greed... And, well, I think that, that could be a part of it. I don't think that's the primary 
uh, motivation for Judas. Um, interestingly, um, Judas uh, recently, some scholars are thinking that he probably was a zealot. Of course, the other disciple that was a zealot was um, Simon the Zealot. Okay, and the zealots were known for keeping a concealed dagger. Okay, these were kind of, this was the nationalistic, uh, military, militant kind of uh, faction in that time, looking to take over the Romans, looking to rebel. Okay, that he probably was a part of this zealot party. So, and actually the word Iscariot, which is a form of the title Sicari, which means dagger man. So perhaps we could even say Judas the dagger man might actually be a, a way of um, translating that. And so the zealots believed that if they turned Israel back to God and incited war against the Romans, that the Messiah would arise to lead them and establish his kingdom. And certainly, um, uh, whether you believe this to be true about Judas or not, that certainly was the dominant theme of many. And I think last week we could make a good case that that was certainly Peter's vision. Okay, But again, the ideal here was turn back to God and then he will lead us to defeat our enemies. Okay, And in, ter- in terms of money, yes, he did get 30 pieces of silver, but you know that's not a lot. I mean, the, the perfume, 300 pieces of silver could be sold for. And in Zechariah, where this, interestingly, um, prophetically, this is described, it's kind of described sarcastically. The 30 pieces of silver, the magnificent sum they thought I was worth. So it was worth maybe a couple months' wages. So it's nothing to sneeze at, but it's not like a, it's just a fantastic amount of money. And as soon as, you know, Judas's plot fell through, what did he do? He went back and he just threw it on the steps, gave it away. Okay, so here's a more extended quote on this. Um, from someone uh, I enjoy, Greg Boyd. Uh, he, he wrote on this that a dominant teaching in the Eastern Orthodox Church is that Judas wasn't primarily interested in 30 pieces of silver. Rather, Judas was a hyper-patriotic, misguided disciple. In betraying Jesus, Judas was trying to force Jesus' hand. He believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but did not believe in the way in which Jesus was the Messiah. He believed with all his being that when push came to shove, Jesus would engage in victorious warfare and overthrow the Roman government. He believed that Jesus came to preserve his, Judas's, nationalistic, militaristic view of the kingdom. Judas was the one who would be the least open to Jesus' gospel of suffering, service, winning your enemies that way rather than coercively. Judas forced Jesus' hand because he believed that surely the Messiah would rise up and fight. And so perhaps even Judas and his motivation for this you know, knowing that the guards would come and arrest him, thinking, well, now finally, I'm, I'm going to force him. He's going to have to act. He's going to have to rise up and do this in a, in a might and power way. And perhaps Jesus, Judas would be a hero at that moment. Maybe that's what he thought. Okay, so this is kind of the mindset of Judas going into the upper room. And we read this verse last time that they were at the supper and the devil had already put into the heart of Judas. That's the second time the thought of betraying Jesus. And so just imagine, Jesus is aware of all of this, what's going on in the mind of Peter, what's going on in the mind of Judas. Okay, And the disciples, we read, walking into the upper room, they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Okay, And I mean, just wouldn't this be a little depressing if you're Jesus? Okay, You're thinking about Calvary, you're thinking about the cross, and here are these disciples you've been working with for three and a half years, and the mess that they're in, they're in the upper room. Okay, and so what Jesus did, 
in recognition of all this power, as we said last time, he rose from the table, took off his outer garment, and tied a towel around his waist. And I think, um, again, as we talked about last time, that the, the two visions of the kingdom, <clears throat> one is a power over kingdom. It's a coercive kingdom. It's a kingdom that forces people into the kingdom. Okay, it's a me first. Can I sit at your right-hand side? It's a defeat our enemies through power kind of a kingdom. The kingdom Jesus is trying to usher in, as we said, it's a, it's a power under. It's a, it's a towel power kind of a kingdom. It's a service. Okay, people come in of their own choice. They're not forced in. It's an others first kind of a kingdom. It's a kingdom that serves and suffers for enemies to win them rather than to defeat and kill uh, the enemies. So there, there are two contrasting versions of the kingdom. <clears throat> and I can't remember, I might have shared this illustration with you last year uh, for the second year students who we were talking about this, but uh, what would be, can we make a parallel? We will not wash feet today. It would be kind of strange uh, to have someone just go out and, and wash your feet. Can we think of a modern day, uh, maybe analogy to that? And I've kind of imagined... Um, Let's say there's this super neurosurgeon, best in the world, doing the latest innovative surgeries, and you want to be a neurosurgeon, and so you have the opportunity. You're one of his disciples, okay? And you get to work with this individual. You get to learn all the latest techniques. You're excited, okay? But the, the group of people that you're with, working with this neurosurgeon, <clears throat> you know, they're always trying to show off, always trying to reveal that they know a little bit more. There's a lot of competition to be the top, to be the best. Okay, now the neurosurgeon, okay, the master neurosurgeon, um, his version of medicine is service, humility. Okay, and that's what he is really wanting to instill in uh, his disciples, the neurosurgery residents. Okay, and so he's observing all of this and is kind of disappointed with the arrogance and the, you know, fighting to the top um, kind of mentality among all the residents, interns, you know, that are working with him. And so one day in this setting where all this is going on and he's just not able to communicate the message of what he really wants, what he really thinks a neurosurgeon, a physician should be like, that he just leaves the, the room where they're talking about patients, okay, and you wonder where he's going. And so you follow him out to the parking lot and there he gets a bucket and some soap and he begins washing your car maybe the most arrogant resident first, okay? Does a lot of detail work on the chrome, okay? Buffs the tires, does all of that, and then goes from one car to the next, okay? Now, would that make an impression? You know, here is greatest neurosurgeon in the world who is doing this, okay? I think this is just as vivid a way as Jesus can make it to say, this is what my kingdom looks like. Do you want to be a part of a kingdom that looks like that? Okay, so... Um, and also, I just find that, uh, you know, we're told about the interaction between Jesus and Peter when Jesus washed Peter's feet, or tried to initially. Um, we're not told about the interaction between Jesus and Judas. So that's up to our imaginations. But based on what we know about Jesus, okay, what do we imagine the encounter was like? Okay, when Jesus washed the feet of Judas. And he didn't wash the feet of Judas. He washed all 12 pairs of dirty feet. Okay, and... Uh, was this an action? Don't you think Jesus was really hoping okay, that Judas at that point would be won over to a kingdom that looked like that? Okay, but we know it didn't work because after Jesus um, washed their feet, okay, after he said all of this, he was deeply troubled. 
and declared openly, I'm telling you the truth. One of you is going to betray me. The disciples looked at one another, completely puzzled about whom he meant. One of the disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, okay, we believe that to be John, was sitting next to Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to him and said, ask him who he is talking about. So that disciple moved closer to Jesus' side and asked, who is it, Lord? And Jesus answered, I will dip some bread in the sauce and give it to him. He is the man. So he took a piece of bread, dipped it, and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, okay, here it is the third time, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, hurry and do what you must. But none of the others at the table understood why Jesus said this to him. Okay, so it said quietly or just that one little part out of context. They didn't really understand. Hurry and do what? Okay, and that becomes clear here in the rest of John. And this, this is remarkable. So since Judas was in charge of the money bag, some of the disciples thought that Jesus had told them to go and buy what they needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. Because, of course, Judas just a few days earlier had expressed such concern for the poor. Uh, why wasn't this money for the perfume given to the poor? And Jesus said, hurry and do what you must. And uh, what I, I just find incredible about this, um, I just I can't imagine myself doing this. I mean, imagine someone betraying you in the worst possible manner. And you know it, and this other individual knows it, Okay, but, but the other people around, they're not entirely clear what's going on. As, and as this individual goes out to do the deed, um, wouldn't you want other people to know? Okay, wouldn't you want to embarrass the individual? Uh, wouldn't you want to uh, just make it more public that this is a horrible thing? Okay, a dastardly deed. And yet the other disciples are thinking that maybe Judas went out to give something to the poor. So I think it says something about God just the way he treated someone who just so flagrant here in, in his betrayal. Disciples thought he was going to give something to the poor. <clears throat> so how does God treat his enemies? Um, and we could, we could discuss God's foreknowledge and all of that. But um, here I would just say, if God has a complete knowledge of an individual who is going to go the wrong way, okay, like Judas, okay, here in John, Jesus knew from the beginning which of them would not believe and who would betray him. We could still use this as a case study to say that even someone who God knows perhaps will not respond to the full re revelation of love, kindness, forgiveness, that he'll still treat that individual in this way. Okay, so that's what the life of the, the interaction between Jesus and Judas, I think, reveals. God treats his enemies this way to the very end. Okay, so the, the verse here in Matthew 5 about treating enemies. So you've heard it was said, love, agape your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love, agape your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be the sons of your father in heaven. Notice what's the condition of being the son of your father in heaven. It's to love your enemies. Okay, the Father causes sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's how God, the Father, treats his enemies. So if you love only those who love you, what reward will you get? Okay, and then this is the passage where he went on to say, now be perfect like your Father in heaven. The perfection or the growing up is in the context of loving your enemies as God loves and treats his enemies. Okay, so Jesus is the embodiment, the, the revelation that this is how God treats his enemies. 
And I think the other important part of this story, <clears throat> one of the other important parts, is you know, the three times Satan entered into Judas. The involvement of the demonic in all of this. Okay, several times. And remember um, that Jesus, last time we read, also warned Peter. Simon, Simon, listen, Satan has received permission to test all of you. Okay, so the, the demonic agencies are very intently involved with Peter, with Judas, and a, a verse which I won't read here in 1 Corinthians 2 that really talks about the, the activity of the demonic in the death of Jesus. And so I think it is really important when we try to understand uh, why bad things happen in this world, why bad things happen to good people, why there's such chaos, cruelty, starving children, all kinds of things, that we not make God as the only acting subject in our world. Okay, we need to have a triangle. Okay, there are humans who do crazy, messed up things, and that results in all kinds of chaos. Okay, but there is also a, de a, a demonic, a, a non-human reality. Okay, and I think if we don't incorporate that, we're really missing a, a, an important window into disease, suffering, all kinds of bad things that happen in our world. And, and we see that in this story. We see the, the satanic element and influence on people like Judas and Peter and how all of that led to the, the chaos, contributed to the chaos of the cross and what happened. And I think we could make a case that the demonic was there stirring up the crowd and all of the, uh, the events that happened in the people surrounding the cross. So we need this triangle to understand human suffering. And God, as we've discussed before, he did not eliminate the devil and his followers. Okay, And even more surprising, remember Jesus called Satan the prince of this world. And even after the cross, Paul would talk about um, Satan as the god of the, uh, I can't quote it exactly here, but as an individual who has incredible influence um, on our world and the way it is. Okay, so um, we need to take that in as we understand our world. Whoa, my goodness. Okay, you got a quick preview of the rest of the slides. Okay, so from the upper room. And out in Gethsemane, which we'll talk about in a couple weeks, uh, Jesus said, get up, let us go. Look, here is the man who's betraying me. And Jesus was still speaking when Judas, one of the 12 disciples, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs and sent by the chief priests and the elders. The traitor had given the crowd a signal. The man I kiss is the one you want. Arrest him. And Judas went straight to Jesus and said, peace be with you, teacher, and kissed him. And Jesus answered, be quick about it, friend. And then they came up, arrested Jesus, and held him tight. And so, right in this context, so Judas betrays Jesus, and Peter, right at this moment, takes out the sword, cuts off the ear of Malchus. And so, I think what we're seeing here is Judas trying to usher in a certain type of kingdom. And as we said last week, Peter is also trying to usher in a certain type of kingdom. Okay, they're both trying to push... Jesus in this direction, okay? And right after Peter cuts off the ear of Malchus, okay, in Matthew 26, Jesus said, don't you know that I could call on my father for help and at once he would send me more than 12 armies or legions of angels? Okay, Judas was standing there when Jesus said this. And again, both for Judas and Peter, yes, do it. 
That's it. That's what we're waiting for. Send, call in the angels. Okay, use power. Okay, so Jesus is saying, yeah, I could do that. Okay, there's no power deficiency in God. It's the way he uses his power. And he's not using his power like Peter and Judas would like. So if we contrast or compare Peter and Judas, both had a wrong view of the kingdom, what it looked like. Okay, remember, both were rebuked by Jesus at moments when they were passionately against the, the type of kingdom Jesus was um, trying to reveal. Okay, both were clearly the subjects of Satan's intent focus. <clears throat> both had their feet washed by Jesus. Both tried to force Jesus to usher in a kingdom of force and power, and we see that right at that moment of arrest. Both betrayed Jesus, and here I'll put as a question mark. Uh, both repented. Now, we know Peter did. He went out and wept, okay, and he repented. Okay, did Judas repent? Well, if we read it in Matthew 27, when Judas the traitor learned that Jesus had been condemned, he repented and took back the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. And he said, I've sinned by betraying an innocent man to death. And they said, what do we care about that? That's your business. And Judas threw the coins down in the temple, left, went off and hanged himself. Okay, did Judas repent? Well, the, uh, the Greek word here, uh, remember when we talked about repentance, repent means to change your mind. The word metanoia, noia is brain. Meta is change, like metamorphosis. And so many of the more modern translations, instead of saying repent, uh, say change your mind. Okay, but the word used here where Judas repented, it's a different word, which I will not try to pronounce. Okay, but in the Greek, this word, you can see it's similar to metanoia, uh, has a different meaning. It means more uh, to have regret or remorse. It doesn't carry the same meaning as really to change your mind about something. So he had regret or remorse, but I would say this is different than the uh, repentance of Peter. Okay, so how many have seen uh, Les Miserables? Maybe not the musical, but at some point. So quite a few of you. Um, if you're not into musicals, uh, get a DVD that is, you know, not the musical version of it. So it's not for everyone. But our 10 and, <laughs> 10 and 12 year old boys sat through three hours of this, so they were they were a little tired by the end. But um, anyway, it's an incredible story of uh, a convict, Jean Valjean, who was in 18 years in prison for stealing a loaf of bread. Okay, and it kind of contrasts between um, he and the police inspector Javert. And so uh, what the beginning, if you just watch the first 20 minutes of this, it's uh, just incredibly moving because he's released from prison and he has this yellow passport so everyone knows you know, he's a convict. And so he's out on the streets and a priest takes him in okay, and is kind to him against the objections of everyone else uh, in, the, in the priesthood there, all the other people. And in the middle of the night, he gets up and he steals all the silver Okay, and he rushes out. And of course, he's caught by the police and he's brought back to the priest and they said, oh, we caught the man who stole your silver. And the priest turns to him and says, I'm very disappointed with you. Why didn't you take the candlesticks as well? And he brought out the candlesticks and he gave them to him. And the police, of course, are shocked that this man, this convict, actually was given silver by the priest. And so, you know, he's speechless and, and, and the, preach, the priest says... Today I have won your soul to God. And basically told him, now go out and live that way. And so for the rest of the movie, um, he's a changed man. 
Okay? He ended up living that way. He ended up treating his enemies that way. And so he became governor, very influential. But then eventually, here the police, police inspector who knew him in prison discovered who he was. And what I find fascinating about the movie is there are multiple times where Jean Valjean had an opportunity to do the police inspector in. But he kept forgiving him, kept treating him kindly. Okay, even rescued him on one occasion. And he just doesn't know what to do with that. It does not fit his model of justice. Okay, his model is if you're a criminal, you're always a criminal, and justice should be served, and just cannot wrap around his mind this guy that keeps forgiving him, keep let, keeps letting him go. He wants to arrest him and punish him. Okay, and so in the end, okay, the, just the final time that he is really ultimately forgiven, um, he commits suicide. Okay, there are a lot of parallels that I see kind of between the life of Judas and the police inspector here in Les Miserables. Okay, God didn't kill Judas. Okay, Judas chose to leave Jesus' side. He killed himself. Okay, and uh, so I think that the revelation of who God is, the revelation of God's love, it, it can sometimes do things in us that, um, that we might reject. And then there, there, there's destruction. So I think that um, we'll talk about the meaning of Jesus' death. But I think at the very least, we can see that just as we see in the life of Peter all the way through and the life of Judas all the way through, the, the culmination of God's love, God's forgiveness, we see on the cross. And that is to be just a penetrating, just all-embracing, all-encompassing, um, I think, focus for each one of us. I think what the Holy Spirit is trying to do is to reveal uh, the, just the deep and immense love of God, and that is to work within, that is to change us. Okay, we see that it did eventually for Peter. Okay, but Judas eventually cut it off. He said no and hung himself. So I think what we see actually in the life of Peter and Judas is judgment. And we don't usually associate judgment with this, but um, clearly if you just look up what book in the New Testament has the most to say about judgment, it's the Gospel of John. Again and again and again. Judgment, judgment, judgment. And judgment in the Gospel of John equates with revelation. Judgment is where the light is revealed. And then what do we do with it? Okay, do we accept it? Do we reject it? The judgment is something we do in our minds. Okay, I think that's what we see going on in Peter and Judas. Uh, just to give you a few examples. In John 12, Jesus would say, Now is the time for this world to be judged. Talking about his death. Now the ruler of this world will be overthrown. And when I am lifted up to the earth, I will draw everyone to me. Okay, the cross is the ultimate revelation of God. And I would say it's the ultimate revelation of the adversary as well. It's, it's a revelatory process where the ruler of this world is cast out, cast out of our minds. Okay, let me give you a little more evidence for that. Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John 3. And this is the judgment. That's an amazing verse. The translation I usually read says, this is how the judgment works. I mean, there's no more clear, straightforward description of the judgment than this. This is how the judgment works. That the light has come into the world, that's a revelation. But people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. So the light comes into the world. 
Now, what does it do inside? What does that revelation do to us? That's how the judgment works. Do we come into the light or do we go out into the darkness? So we make the decision in a sense, but, but God through Jesus is the revelation. That stimulates the judgment process. So in a really good uh, commentary on the Gospel of John by Rudolf Bultmann, he said, Unbelief, by shutting the door on God's love, turns his love into judgment. For this is the meaning of judgment, that man shuts himself off from God's love. There would be no judgment at all were it not for the event of God's love. And with the mission of the Son, this judgment has become a present reality. So it's the light, the love, and in how do we respond? And continuing, judgment is for him nothing more nor less than the fact that the light, the revealer, revelation, has come to the world. This saving event is turned into judgment for the reason that men have shut themselves off from the light. So um, just a few other samples here in John. The beginning of John 5.22 is, is a remarkable paradigm shift for me. The Father judges no one. Isn't in our whole conception of the judgment, the Father on the throne. And here Jesus says the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now, what does that mean? The Son is the revealer of the Father. Okay, so judgment ultimately comes through the Son. He's the one that reveals the love of God. So the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son, son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come under judgment. Okay, judgment is the, the negative rejection of God's love in Jesus. Okay, so, so one more. And this is now in a future sense about judgment. Okay, these are the last words of Jesus to the Pharisees. He cried aloud, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Jesus is the revealer of the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me should not remain in the darkness. I do not judge anyone who hears my words and does not keep them. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, listen to this. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. On the last day, the word that I have spoken will serve as judge. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment about what to say and what to speak. So the judge in the end, on the last day, the word that I have spoken will serve as judge. And in this context where Jesus is saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, that is the ultimate revelation. And how do we respond to that? On the last day, the word, that truth, that understanding uh, will serve as judge. Okay, this is the judgment, I think, ultimately that, that Peter and Judas uh, were weighing. So what is the word that will be our, our judge on the last day? Uh, I would say in context that it's believing and liking Jesus' revelation of the Father. Judas didn't like it. So to also believe it's true, but also to come to relish and appreciate the kind of kingdom, the kind of way that Jesus revealed his Father to be. Okay, so Sigvi Tonsad, I'm really sad that he moved back to Norway uh, here a few months ago, but uh, was in the theology department here, and he wrote some good things about revelation and judgment. 
He said that revelation becomes judgment by exposing the individual's response to Jesus. To remain in the darkness means the darkness of misperception of God. Okay, so examples of judgment. I'll just give you one other example that's kind of a parallel with Peter and Judas. Um, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Okay, he received an intense revelation. Okay, all of the false gods of Egypt systematically were defeated. Okay, they had a god of the frogs. So you have a plague of frogs to show that God is stronger than the god of the frogs. And you go through each and every one of them, systematically disarming all of those gods. Okay, and so the description of what happened to Pharaoh, it's, it's amazing in the span of three verses, it's described three different ways. He hardened his heart, so the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. And then God said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. Well, which one is it? God did it, Pharaoh did it, it just happened. Okay, we're given all three choices. And I think all are true. And the example I like is, you know, you take a lump of butter and clay, put it in the oven, turn up the heat. Okay, the heat is the revelation of God. Okay, the effect that it has on an individual, though, uh, will differ. Okay, God is not two-faced. He's revealing who he is. And Peter, okay, his heart was ultimately melted. He was won over. Judas, his heart was hardened. Pharaoh was hardened by the revelation. So again, this, the, the judgment effect is how we respond um, to the revelation ultimately of Jesus Christ. So, um, you know, Peter betrayed Jesus three times. He went out and wept and he repented. Uh, Judas hung himself. And I think that what if Judas threw the coins down, he went out and wept, and then he joined the rest of the disciples in the upper room? I mean, don't you think Jesus would have treated Judas the same way he treated Peter if he you know, had truly repented? Okay, I think he would have, but, but Judas um, decided to end it all. So if I could just say a last word on the final judgment kind of in this context, when we get to Revelation, maybe we can say more about this, the great white throne and all of that. How does that fit in with what we've said about judgment? Well, what would be the purpose? You know, Judas is resurrected for the purpose of punishment. Uh, the wicked are resurrected so that now God can, well, what does he do to them? And I think if we see judgment ultimately as a revelation, okay, and, and the, the book of Revelation describes we all come face to face with God, which I would interpret to mean we all are given a full revelation of the reality of things. We all really see it for how it is. Think of all those people that lived before the life and death of Jesus and never heard anything about Jesus. Okay, everyone needs that revelation. Okay, and um, you know, wouldn't you expect God to treat people that way? Everyone gets to understand and make their choice. Judas, I think, understood. He saw the kingdom and he said he didn't want to be a part of that. Okay, but um, I think the final judgment is ultimately so that we all get to take it in and decide. Is that the kingdom we want to be a part of? So last quote here by Sigby. The character of the judgment is revelatory, not judicial. When revelation can do more, can do no more, it is over. It is finished. The revealer is not a judge, but the revealer. And when he can do no more as revealer, he must cease and, cease and desist. So the point here is God does not coerce us into the kingdom. Okay? He will love us. He will try to win us into the kingdom as the revealer, but uh, not the coercer. Okay, let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for the, the incredible revelation of Jesus Christ. 
And in this example, the way you treated Judas, uh, certainly an encouragement to all of us. Uh, help us to see more clearly how you are working in our lives. Help us to see more clearly uh, the life, the death, the teachings of Jesus, and to apply that to our own lives uh, that we can appreciate who you are in your kingdom and enter more fully into it. Amen.